Welcome everyone to Greencast. This is a podcast that brings practicality to being sustainable. Presented to you by the Waukesha County Green Team. Your hosts are myself, Alec Lapoidevin. And me, Laura Lauks. Hello everyone, my name is Alec Lapoidevin. Thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed this episode where I sit down with Dr. Israel Del Toro. He is an assistant professor of biology at Lawrence University where he is focusing on evaluating the impacts of climate change on arthropod biodiversity. So we get into some really great talks today. I hope you learn a, a ton from this. Um, Dr. Israel was, was great to speak with. I definitely learned a lot from him and uh, hope to run into him sometime and, and get into some deeper conversations. So if you'd like to look up uh, what he's working on, check out B-Y-O-B's, with a Z, dot org, where you can see some of the projects he's got working with um, bees in his area and you know, learn a few things that we could do in southeast Wisconsin here. So again, thank you. I hope you enjoy. Please uh, check out our Facebook page and our WashoeCountyGreenTeam.org website. And keep your ears and eyes open. We will be having a sustainability fair this year in August, August 28th of 2021. So check out our, our, our Facebook page, our website, get some info on that. Come join us. And please feel free to reach out anytime. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode and we will see you next time. Thank you. Welcome everyone to another episode of Greencast. Today I've got an excellent guest here joining us, uh, Dr. Israel Del Toro, and we will be talking about the pollinators in our yards and a No Mow May initiative that is really cool to to explore the you know the life all around us on our properties. Um, so you know, Dr. Israel's got some great background here, and I'm really excited for this conversation. So thank you all for joining us, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Israel Del Toro to the show. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us and you know, tell us a lot about what you're getting into. So please, um, if you could give us a little background on yourself and some of the programs you're involved in. Hey, thanks, Alec, for having me. Uh, you know, I've been really looking forward to this chat and sort of just telling people about pollinators around our communities. Uh, so my name is Israel Del Toro. I'm an assistant professor of biology at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. We're a small liberal arts college uh, with a strong focus on our environmental stewardship. And that's one of the big things we try to teach our students. And so this is just part of that program. Um, Lawrence University is also a B campus, so a member of B Campus USA, where uh, not only are we actively trying to promote environmentally friendly initiatives that protect our pollinators and our bees in our campus, but we also want to get our students involved in the research angle and bring the science and the uh, and the practice all together. And so that's sort of what we're about. Uh, and Nomome is just one of the many initiatives that we do in our campus and our community to try to achieve that mission. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, thank you for for that uh, focus. You know, the, the no, no, no mo may thing is, you know, I, I think it's what what most people are familiar hearing now. Um, it's kind of become, you know, thankfully kind of a term that we we can at least relate to. But, um, you know, the focus today, we're really going to be talking about you know, the, the pollinators and the effects of this type of practice. So, um, you know, can you give us a little, you know, kind of a highlights of what 
Yeah, what these pollinator initiatives are all about. What what's the the main goal that you've been trying to get out there? And it's really cool to see that you're getting it at like the university and students are involved in communities. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So this is just an exciting opportunity to sort of bring together communities with actual boots on the ground sort of scientific initiatives, right? So this is all big part of an, of an initiative that some of your uh, uh, listeners might have heard of uh, called Citizen Science, where we actually have folks, just everyday regular folks like you and me, uh, submit data and uh, contribute data and observations so that us scientists can take a look at that information and make decisions and make uh, and complete studies and analyses about what's going on in our own backyards. Now, um, Nomo May, just to give you a little bit of background on that, is an initiative that wasn't actually started here. It was, I first heard about Nomo May when I was living in UK. Uh, and so in the UK, uh, the Nomo May initiative has been going on by a group called Plant Life now for uh, several years, where basically they're asking folks to do exactly what we're asking folks to do here in Wisconsin, and that's to limit the amount of mowing that they conduct during the month of May. Now, the basic idea and the basic emphasis of this uh, relies around the simple principle that uh, bees and other pollinators hibernate through the winter, right? So they're not, you don't see bees in your backyard or moths or butterflies during the winter months. And that's because they're uh, endo, uh, sorry, they're ectotherms. So their body temperatures are dependent on the outside environmental conditions. So when things cool down in the winter, their metabolism slow down. So they basically become inactive. They go into this hibernation state. And then when they wake up, uh, come springtime, right around this time of the year, April and May, uh, they wake up really hungry. So think of a, a big bear going into a hibernation cave. It puts on all, this all these pounds of weight. Uh, and then all of a sudden it goes to sleep and its body continues to metabolize that energy. Well, bees and other pollinators are essentially doing the same thing. So that when they wake up around early May, uh, they're waking up relatively famished, right? So they're really, really hungry. They need some food right away. And it turns out that some of the earlier flowering species are things that you and I might normally consider weeds in our yards. Things like dandelions or mints or creeping charlie or a couple other little things that you might not think of twice about when you run them over with your lawnmower. To us, it might not seem like a big deal, but to a hungry bee you've just taken away its lunch. And so the idea here is that if we can provide that early foraging resource or that early food for our pollinators, then they, this should help them build stronger and more abundant populations throughout the rest of the year. Um, so that's sort of the, the science or the logic behind where Nomo May is. But Nomo May is more than just this initiative about like not mowing your lawn, right? Part of the non mowing your lawn part is kind of fun and a really passive way of engaging in pollinator protection. But there are other active ways that we like to highlight as part of May uh, in which you can also become involved in protecting pollinator diversity in your backyard. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really important to hear, you know, I, I guess a lot of my background comes from that plant side and I've, I've focused a lot on those plants that we call weeds, you know, and it, and it, it turns out all of these plants, you know, they've got their place in our ecosystem and they tend to be the ones that we want to get rid of the quickest that are really quite beneficial to our, our environment. 
you know, and you mentioned those, you know, that are right up at the top of everyone's dislike list, which is the dandelions, uh, creeping Charlie. I don't know how many people have just been like, how do I get rid of this stuff? Right. Um, but you know, from the human side, I, I know those all have medicinal and, um, edible factors to them. So it's, you know, we can kind of work with our, our environments and, yeah. you know, supply the bees with some food, but we can also, you know, then look at it for ourselves too. maybe give the bees the chance to, to hit it first and, and take their Absolutely. nutrients, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. And, you know, I think there's going to be a delicate balance, right? I think we are part of the ecosystem, just like bees are part of the ecosystem. We have our role to play in the ecosystem. Bees have their role to play in the ecosystem. And as I was mentioning earlier to you, you don't really have to go very far to get deep into ecology. That's kind of one of the really cool things about what my lab does is we focus in on urban ecology or the ecology that's happening in our very own parks and recreation areas or our very own backyards you know in my own backyard just for example i i like to think that we have a couple of mini ecosystems going i have chickens in the backyard and i'm right smack in the middle of appleton right so i have chickens in the backyard bees a block away uh honeybees a block away i have uh gardens all around and all of these things i like to think are intertwined with one another you know that our gardens might require the pollinators the chickens might provide fertilizer for our veggies and sort of uh, that's how i like to think about these urban ecosystems as like yes they're managed human human managed ecosystems but we can take advantage of certain ecological principles to enhance what we what the benefits that we can get back from from the and the ecosystem services provided by biodiversity. Yeah, I love that, you know, kind of looking at that big picture, you know, we're, we're part of this, um, you exactly. know, and it's, it's without all the other aspects of this picture, we, you know, we can't do all this stuff that, that we do. And, you know, I like the idea that comes from permaculture of land stewardship, you know, so we're really stewards of the land. How do we manage it properly to, you know, join with that ecology rather than trying to control it in this really human way of, you know, manipulating every factor to our, you know, distinct, you know, kind of perspective on it. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I think it's it's a balanced uh, thing, but it's also a scientific practice, right? Like this isn't something we're just making up on a whim. These are things for which we have data for, studies that we've done over the last couple hundred years. If we think back to early naturalists like Charles Darwin uh, or to contemporary scientists like Edward Wilson uh, that you know have re had really significant impactful contributions to the field of ecology and sort of help us inform how to better manage our ecosystems, whether they be a remote tropical rainforest in Costa Rica or your own backyard and you know maybe the ash tree in your backyard and how you might be able to manage the, the biodiversity in your own yard, which is kind of a cool, cool idea. Yeah, I think it, it really gives us a place within that, you know, and, and shows, you know, we do have an importance in this, you know, we, we, we are part of this. And if we, you know, take these steps, you know, we can be a part of a bigger picture solution that is pretty cool. And in, in my yeah. perspective, um, and you know, I don't so know. I'm just also like a science nerd, right? So I like to experiment <laughs> and like play with nature and see what works and see what doesn't work. And that's sort of what we did last year with Nomo May. At a city level, I somehow managed to convince the the pollinators, a, a local uh, pollinator support group or a pollinator um, 
Protection Conservation Group in Appleton and the Fox Cities, we managed to convince our city council to let us do this citywide experiment that was no OMA. And guess what? It totally worked. Uh, it worked uh, in, in supporting uh, a lot of the hypotheses we had set out. And, you know, the world didn't burn down. Our lawns didn't explode <laughs> with ticks and lice and, and mice and all these things, all these pestilent ideas. It was okay. Like, we were able to survive a month without mowing our lawns, uh, you know, and have some really impactful benefits for our pollinators locally. That's super cool. Yeah. And one of the things I was really curious about is, you know, how did you kind of get that ball rolling with the local, you know, community? Yeah. One, the the people in the community and two, the, you know, the more governmental side of it. Um, yeah. how, how did you kind of get that started? And, you know, for people listening, how could we maybe approach this? Absolutely. So I'm hoping you're able to share my contact information through your podcast a little bit later on. Uh, but, you know, I think if you uh, if you reach out to me, I have sort of a general packet, uh, a general template. If you're interested in doing no movement in your community, here's the basic things you're going to need. And one of those documents is this general citywide resolution. So in Appleton, we're a relatively large city of about 80,000 people. Um, and by, I guess, by Wisconsin standards, that's pretty large. Uh, and so we have a long grass ordinance, which basically means that the city can fine you for having grass that is essentially taller than eight inches. And if a neighbor complains and you don't do anything about it, then the city will mow your lawn and, and issue you a fine. And so what we've asked here, the city, is to basically temporarily suspend that program just for the month of May and let people who volunteer, who opt into the No Mow May initiative to grow their lawn, their, their lawns out as long as they like or as long as they're able to during the month of may now this could be really variable just to give you an example again going back to my own yard my yard is relatively shady right and it has a mix of low mow species grass species in, in it um, and so it never really gets above eight inches anyway it, it's very very difficult to actually get it to that height and actually be a problem you know i typically mow my lawn three or four times over the course of a summer if that um whereas my neighbor has a very very productive lawn like this is my right next door neighbor right and his lawn during no mow may because i obviously convinced him to participate last year <laughs> grew to two and a half feet tall and so you have two yards right next to each other completely dramatically different results mine staying relatively low and his growing really high uh, and that's just the variability that you're expecting to see in a city some lawns are going to get really tall and others are not and that's that's okay the goal here, going back to the original goal or scientific objective of Nomo May, is to let those flowers bloom and those, uh, you know, those flowers that we would normally trim or or nip early on during uh, during May. Uh, we want those things to become accessible foraging resources for our bees and other pollinators. Nice, yeah, and I like that variable in the different lawn types. Um, you know, I know typically we've got a mix of Kentucky bluegrass, rye, and fescue grasses. You know, right. and that that can change location to location, and depending on yeah shade and everything, you could have. You know, your your no mow scenario could result in a fairly short lawn in certain places, yep. um, where it's really not not much of a factor, but. Right. Um, you know, I, I like that approach of, you know, just suspending that particular ordinance for just a month, you know, yeah. and I, I feel like that's a 
fairly simple ask, you know. Right. Um, and I know I mean, one we of already our local... do things like this, right? Like we have yeah. November, for example, where you don't shave for the month of November, <laughs> uh, or you know your COVID beard, or whatever it is that you're doing, or or your COVID haircut, or lack of a haircut that you're doing during these COVID days. Uh, and that that's we already make those sacrifices. Uh, this is just a kind of a passive way to, at the same time. Uh, help our pollinators. Yeah, you know, and I, it, it's, you know, fairly simple ask. And um, I know our local um, Elm Grove Green team, they're, they're supplying signs for people's yards so that you can, you know, allow your neighbors to see, I'm not just being lazy here. I'm not just, you know, throwing the lawnmower out and just letting it go. You know, there's a purpose behind this. And yes, we will get back to mowing once this, this period is over. So, you know, for those listening, that's a you know great way to just inform the neighbors, you know, breach the the subject to them so that they can, you know, maybe take some interest in it as well. And you know, if we educate people around us, we can kind of, you know, spread this this idea and and maybe break make a bigger impact. So yeah, and that's a really great point. So that's a you know, last year we had. 500 folks in, in Appleton alone registered oh, wow. to participate uh, in No Mow May. So they went through our online form, plugged in their uh, you know notification that they were participating, answered a few short survey questions, and went ahead and grew out their lawns. Uh, and we did give them little flags last year to put in their lawns to say, like, I'm participating in No Mow May. But this year we're going bigger. We're, we're having actual big signs printed out. So if you're in the Fox Cities area or one of our participating communities, um, you know, each community is going to have like a different pickup spot. So, for example, um, Appleton here, we're probably going to be distributing our signs through a local brewery or through City Hall. Uh, some folks have been talking about distributing through like a, a local fire station where we can just leave a pile of these signs for folks to sign up, pick up a sign and put it in their front yard if they are interested in participating. So stay tuned for, for locations. Specific locations are where, where you can collect your free sign. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for that note. And um, I think, yeah, just having that up there really can help the 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 complaint calls to to whoever or the knocks on the door and just you know again I'm I'm just all about getting that education out there, so right. we can you know have a discussion rather than a, a blame game or yeah. you know something like that. It's it's really you know kind of cool what people will be forgiving of if you just let them know what you're doing. Totally, and I just want to remind folks also that this is a totally opt-in voluntary voluntary experience, right? Like I understand that there are some folks that are going to want their like perfectly two-inch high uh, manicured lawns, and that that's great if that's what does it for you, and that's how you feel like uh, you know you're helping your community stay beautiful, or maybe you want to try something else like planting native plants, or composting, or uh, vermiculture or whatever you want to do instead of Nomome, that's great. I think this is just an opportunity to get the dialogue going, educate the people of our communities on different ways and different methods that we can use to sort of protect the biodiversity in our backyards. Yeah, thank you for that 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 little list there because you know I do often tell people it's like you know just find some way that you can kind of do some of this stuff. Composting is my one of my favorite things. I mean, totally. never yeah. has rotting food products and debris been so cool to me until you see all that life it creates and then what you can do with it. 
I know um, it's really nuts. So. And like, that's one of the things also that comes out of the end of Nomo May actually. So a lot of people were freaked out last year. It's like, okay, so I let my grass grow through to two and a half feet high. Now I have all these dead grass clippings in my lawn. Like, what do I do with all this dead grass? And uh, uh, what we're actually encouraging people to do is one of two things. Uh, compost it in your own backyard. You can have a very simple compost pit. We have one just at the end of our backyard where we throw in like food waste or like chicken manure or whatever and mix it all together with our grass clippings. Another really cool thing you can do is just mix it right into your grass. Just let it be. It's going to be stinky for maybe a day or two, but then you're actually feeding your grass all the essential nutrients it's going to need to continue to be healthy over the course of the summer. So rather than spending all that time raking away all that grass, just feed it back to your lawn. That's probably the easiest thing you can do. If that none of that floats your boat, that's totally okay. Completely understand. Uh, and you still want to bag your grass clippings. In the Fox Cities, we're going to be working with uh, various community gardens where you can go deposit your grass clippings for free. And then those folks will use it in the community gardens as fertilizer as well. So this is just an opportunity to essentially, you know, it's free money. It's like free fertilizer uh, that we can go ahead and pump back into our veggies or our flower gardens or whatever it is that you're growing in your own yard. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I know leaving your grass clippings when you mow just right there is a nitrogen hit for your grass. Exactly. You know? So composting it for the garden, I'm all about that. To me, I'm, I get all excited when the grass is long because then that's extra stuff for the compost and the garden's happy. Yeah, it's, that's it's, exactly it's right. It's a good you know? way of closing those loops. Exactly. You know? And it's really thinking about those loops, right? It's really thinking about that energy that's flowing through the ecosystem that is your backyard. And like, where can I put in nutrients? Where can I uh, take out nutrients? Um, you know, maybe you can reduce the frequency that you apply herbicides or pesticides to your yard by just managing that energy flow a little bit better in your own yard. And, and you know, talking to the experts like yourself or like your local ag extension or shooting me an email about, you know, what you'd like to do in your yard. And we can definitely, if we don't know the answers, we can certainly point you in the right direction of the resources that are out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and that's, yeah, if I, if I don't know something, I always go find someone that's smarter than me on the topic and, you know, happy to answer those questions for people. Um, you know, it's it's worth worth the effort to to get that info out. Um, so I want to jump back to the pollinators a little bit. I know that's your main your main game. And, you know, I read a bunch of stuff that, that you've gotten involved in with pollinators and it was super fascinating. So um, I just to, to kind of give a, a brief understanding to you know the audience, what what is one of the big impacts or the several big impacts that pollinators have on our lives that we may not be aware of in kind of our day-to-day -day lives? Sure. So let's start off with the big one, right, which is uh, food production. Food production is really reliant on a variety of pollinators. And when I'm talking pollinators, I'm not just talking bees. I'm also talking moths. Flies are excellent pollinators. There's even some mammals out there that are excellent pollinators. Think about like bats and certain ecosystems can be really important pollinators. Um, in any case, or and birds as well, uh, all of these pollinating organisms play important roles in food production. So think about a third of the food that you eat is actually directly dependent on some other organism coming around and pollinating it. Think about apples, pears, berries, 
uh, a lot of like coffee, for example, <laughs> you know, oh, chocolate uh, in the tropics is dependent on pollinators. So there's all of these things that we take for granted. Like I can just reach over my table here and maybe grab an apple and say like, okay, this apple required a pollinator, a pollination event, you know, and this apple required that an insect visit that apple flower and cross pollinate in order to achieve a product that I can now go ahead and take a bite out of. Um, and so you think about like economies, entire economies, for example, like Dort County cherries, big deal up here in Northeast Wisconsin. There's a whole economy built around Dort County cherries or cranberries and blueberries throughout the state. Uh, we think about uh, apples and pears uh, and we think about all of these uh, other other uh, food items that are entirely dependent on key pollinators. If we add all of that up, we call that an ecosystem service. And that ecosystem service is valued at multiple billions of dollars every single year. Okay, so we're not talking about chump change here. We're talking about real money, right, that has like se severe or serious economic consequences and it's reliant on these tiny little bugs that we would think are pretty insignificant any other day. But now we can start to see the important role of these small insects in, in sustaining viable economic uh, sources of revenue. The other thing, another ecosystem service that I'm particularly particularly interested in these days is honey. Uh, so I've, I've started playing with non-native pollinators a little bit. And we think about honeybees as that non-native species. So honeybees, if you didn't know, are actually not native to uh, the U.S. They're the, the honeybee that we use here in the U.S. is the European honeybee, Apis mellifera. And Apis mellifera is a domesticated organism uh, that has been transported from the old world to the new world uh, and now produces a product that we care about, honey production in this case, right? And so if you have a cup of, a cup of tea and you drop a spoonful of honey in there, that honey was made by an insect. And so that honey itself has its own economic value as well. Uh, so in, th in terms of thinking about food, it's another area where a pollinator or an insect is responsible for providing that ecosystem service. Um, did I, that sort of answer your question? Sorry. I yeah, like I, yeah, absolutely. Was there. I'm on a rant. <laughs> One, and I like that you touch on the fact that the honeybee is not a native be to this area you know it, right. it, i think it blows people's minds all the time when i'm like yeah it's actually it's a european species that you know we've brought here to to produce honey for us yeah um, and it has its own you know huge economic market on it as yeah. well you know, real raw honey is super expensive as i've come to learn and, <laughs> there, and there are ways to make it work you know um there there's ways to make it work in urban ecosystems there's ways to make it work in rural ecosystems throughout Wisconsin. And that's part of what my lab is trying to figure out currently. It's like, what are some of the best practices to maintain honey production in, in Wisconsin and throughout the Midwest? Well, that that's really interesting. Um, can you share some of that with us? What, what are you yeah. kind of finding? I know there's a lot of people starting to get into, you know, keeping beehives at home. So it's, it's become a, you know, it's a growing hobby, but then it's actually, really? I've seen several startup companies coming out that are producing honey on their property and then selling it at local farmers markets. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a big business. It's a lot of potential revenue, but it's also a business that's threatened by various environmental factors. So with our honeybees, for example, we have something called colony collapse uh, disorder. Is it colony collapse disorder? Is it 
CCD. Uh, and uh, this particular situation is actually influenced by a variety of factors. And some of the big factors that play a role in colony collapse are pests like mites that infect our, our honeybees. We also have our application of our irresponsible use and application of herbicides and pesticides, things like uh, glyphosphates or neonicotinoids. Um, and then we also have factors that are threatening our species like climate change. So as climate changes regionally, that influences uh, the their an organism's ability to survive in a particular ecosystem. So in our lab, we're looking at each of those individual factors uh, sort of interplaying with one another, but also considering um, how um, I've been working with a local uh, beekeeper who is really interested in the genetics of, of honeybees. And he's interested in sort of making or, or hybridizing a resilient strain that is able to tolerate higher doses of pesticides or is more resilient to varroa mite infections or is more thermally tolerant so that it can survive in warmer or more unpredictable climatic conditions in the future. So we're sort of trying to design you know, put that in air quotes, uh, design an organism, because after all, this is a domesticated organism that is going to be able to um, deal with a changing environment. Wow, that's that's crazy. Um, you know, and I, I, I get all science nerdy on that, too, and want to dig in deeper. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's something that, you know, we don't always realize is there's a lot of these changes coming up. And you know, to have pollinators adapt to this, um, yeah. you know, and, and as you say, designing the, the bee and, you know, helping them to, to navigate the, the environment they're in now. Um, yeah, that's huge, you know, and without the, the honey industry, I know a lot of people are, you know, they'd be dependent upon that. So that, that's too cool to hear. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 a fun project, and you know we'll certainly stay tuned from news from our lab in the coming years. We're doing other really cool things like uh, looking at uh, native bee biodiversity as well, right? So not only are we focused on the big, uh, most common groups of bees like honeybees and bumblebees, but we also want to look at all these other little things that often go unnoticed. So just to give you a number here, uh, in Wisconsin alone, there's about 500 different species of native bees. And when we think, when we start to count bees, we think, oh, well, we have Apis mellifera and Bombus impatiens, the common bumblebee. Uh, but there's actually 498 other species that you can find any in any given part of Wisconsin. I guess if you took all of Wisconsin together, uh, so that's part of the the really cool thing that we're looking at my looking into in my lab is just thinking about <clears throat> what do what are all these other little hidden gems doing and what roles are they playing in pollination? So let's say worst case scenario, like we're not able to design that perfect honeybee right? That's able to tolerate these changing environmental conditions and honeybees might die off in Wisconsin. Will these native bees then be able to fill those ecosystem processes that honeybees would normally do? And that's sort of a, another line of investigation that my students and I are sort of playing with. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I knew there were several different types of 
bees in the the area, but I, I did not realize there were 500 species of bees. Yeah, I mean, in cool. the Fox Cities alone, we've documented uh, well over 100 different species at this point over the wow. last three or four years. And you expand that, you know, to central Wisconsin, to northern Wisconsin, to western Wisconsin, uh, then that list grows to about 500 different species. That's too cool. And yeah. I know we uh, we had someone come down, the, the Green Team Permaculture and Gardening Group, just outside of the the home that we we have our meetings at, they actually found, um, I believe it was the rusty patch bumblebee. Yeah. You know, so so it was found and documented, and now you know, hopefully, the area that it was seen in is going to become a, a conservation area that then we can help that, you know, that species, you know, maintain that space and and keep going because I know that that's a fairly rare one. Am I correct in that's, that? That's, yeah, that's one of the federally listed uh, endangered, threatened and endangered species. Uh, and those species are really important to look at because they're sort of uh, canary and cold mine sort of situations, right? It, the way those populations are responding to environmental change is often a good indicator of how other species that are closely related might also result, respond to those environmental changes. So if rusty bee, uh, rusty patch bumblebee populations aren't doing great, then that might signal to us that maybe other bee populations aren't doing so hot in that area as well. In contrast, if rusty patch bumblebees are kind of coming back, then maybe we're doing something right in our community and we're, you know, promoting the right habitat or providing enough resources for our native bees to thrive as well. Yeah, I like that indicator. And it's nice to, to you know, be a part of nature to, to view that and to use them as kind of a guideline of are we doing well? Are we doing, you know, are there things we can change? And, you know, this kind of being a, a podcast focusing on sustainability and everything you know, this is great indicators for, for people to be aware of, to show, you know, are there ways that we can change to help the nature recover and get back to a point? And then in return, as that loop comes back, you know, we benefit as well. Um, you know, so, so it's good to, to know that type of stuff. And, um, you know, I know bees are kind of one of those big ones we think of with pollinators. You listed a couple others. Are there any um, other types of pollinators that you really focus on in Wisconsin that are you know, good for, for in the urban areas or ways that we can, can help them, not just through the, the not mowing, but sure. any other ways? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about uh, pollinators for our local flowers or vegetables, we're usually talking about diversity in the insect realm. So the biggest contributors to pollination are in the, in the order Hymenoptera, which include your ants, bees, and wasps. And then the order Diptera, which include uh, your flies. Now, Lepidoptera, uh, which include your butterflies and moths, are also really important pollinators, but they're also a little bit more niche specific, uh, whereas flies and bees and wasps are a little bit more generalized. So they can pollinate a few more things compared to our Lepidoptera friends. Uh, but not to say that leps aren't important. They're very, very cool. We love our monarch butterflies. We love our really cool moths that we see in our yard. Of course, they are an important pollinator to protect as well. Um, one of the things that often gets ignored are flies. You know, flies are kind of annoying. They're buzzing around. People think they're dirty and gross, but they're actually really excellent pollinators. And I'm hoping that in the coming years, I'll have a student that gets really psyched about flies 
and you know <laughs> wants to do like biodiversity recording of the different fly species that we have in the area to see what role they are contributing to pollination. Right now, I do have a student, Jackson, who's really psyched about wasps, and wasps are are tricky, right? Uh, People are scared of wasps because wasps sting and wasps hurt (laughs) and they can be territorial and really a pain, Uh, but they can also be effective pollinators and they can also be effective predators of pests. And so wasps, even though they could be scary and, you know, if you step into a yellow jacket's nest or something, you're going to get hurt, but they're also playing important roles in our urban ecosystems. And so we want to try and better understand what wasps are doing in our backyard as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I certainly, as I, you know, put gardens in for customers, people are very concerned about wasps, especially around fruit trees and fruit bushes, you know, the high, you know, concentration of sugar in the fruits, you know, brings in the, the wasps, but I do have to, tell them like you've got a garden here and there are certain insects that love to eat in your garden and then these wasps come in and they'll they'll take care of some of them populations in check exactly yeah so it goes back to understanding that that whole dynamic of what's going on in your yard it's not an isolated system it's a bunch of organisms playing different ecological roles and interacting with each other and keeping you from you know keeping your tomatoes healthy or making sure that you produce that prize-winning pumpkin by the time fall rolls around or whatever it is that that you're growing in your yard they're gonna there's gonna be an insect that is heavily influencing the success of the the, the veggies you grow in your yard yeah that that balance act is uh you know what i really look at you know is planting certain things along with your edible stuff you know i you know certainly with the the vegetables you know mixing herbs and, and flowers in there and the the big purpose of that is to bring those beneficial insects to your garden to help that balancing act. Absolutely. And can we just talk for a second about like flower alternatives and flower, uh, flower plantings? You know, it's, it's really, it's really great to have ornamental flowers. I love ornamental flowers and I'm sure they are providing food for a lot of insects, but a lot of folks aren't aware of how wonderful and aesthetically pleasing native flowers are as well. You know, and so think about some of the really cool colors, those bright blues or those bright yellows that people like in their yards. Um, you can get those through native flower plantings. Think of things like black-eyed Susans or purple coneflowers or asters late in the spring or goldenrod or, um, let's see, um, I mean, just a variety of flocks, for example, uh, just a variety of species that are out there that are native to your own yard and are going to provide that aesthetic value that you're looking for as a homeowner, uh, but also at the same time provide critical habitat and critical food resources for that native biodiversity. So, you know, uh, since I'm sort of pitching this to a wider Wisconsin audience or a wider Midwestern audience, I can't tell you exactly what's native in your own county. Uh, but I do encourage you to touch base with your local naturalist or your local botanist and figure out like, okay, this is what's going to grow well in my county or in my area or in my neighborhood. Uh, and it's also native, right? It's not only are you increasing biodiversity that way, but you're also providing food for native uh, insects as well. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, there's there's tons of beautiful flowers that, you know, we can put around here. Um, all those that you mentioned, you know, it's like you can get creative with that and put them in aesthetically pleasing designs and everything that's, you know, not only getting that picturesque 
look of the the ornamental flowers but then you know all all the things that you mentioned the benefits and all that and then they're lower maintenance because they're meant for here exactly this is where their natural habitat is so less concern less you know need to go out there you know you just kind of enjoy it and uh, you know something you 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 mentioned before we jumped on and uh, alluded to earlier but um you know, I love the idea of planting these these plants and really just the the observational benefits of being able to go out to your yard and kind of look and watch all these pollinators. You know, I, I you know, if you've had experience, I know you've had experience with it, but just, you know, put yeah. the TV aside and go and look at your yard. Exactly. You know, one of my favorite activities to do on a, on a warm summer evening is to just kind of walk. This sounds really hippie now that I'm like about to say it. But like <laughs> walk around my yard barefoot, right? And just like feel the grass under your toes and take a look at the different flowers and just sit for a minute uh, and have that little bit of that like nature therapy. The idea that, you know, like we live such busy lives and we hardly can get five minutes away to yourself. But if you could just you don't have to go far. You don't have to go to a deep forest or a deep lake to get that sense of nature therapy. Just hanging out in your backyard and listening to the birds, listening to what's changing in your yard, taking a look at what pollinators are arriving, or maybe you have a couple of milkweed plants that are getting occupied by, uh, by monarch caterpillars and just checking on them every few days and that sort of thing. That's really, really, I find that really therapeutic. I find the idea that just being a little bit more connected with the stuff that's going on in my own yard brings me a great deal of like stress relief and peace and joy. And I feel more connected to the ecosystem that that's all around me. Yeah. I'm totally with you on that. I do that quite often. I mean, as I'm checking on my gardens and everything, I've planted wildflower patches and, um, you know, berries and, and fruit trees. And, um, you know, I, I did put some milkweed in the back lot line and it's, it's really cool to go by and check on it. And you see the updates of the plants and then you see the different insects interacting with it. And, you know, it's, it's every day is a new show and you can just exactly. walk around and, you know, you're, it, it's incredible how diverse a, even a small property can be with the proper, you know, introduction of plants and, you know, maybe even just pulling back a little bit on the human factors and just letting it go. Um, exactly. I, I, I think it. that's one of the reasons I just love being an ecologist too. It's like somebody at Lawrence decided it was a good idea to pay me to watch stuff. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, it's like he is going to be a professional watcher of nature. Okay, I could do that. That's a pretty good job. Uh, but, you know, I, I learn so much every day that I'm out there. It's like, oh, you know, this is flowering this time of year, or maybe this new bee species is starting to show up, or maybe we have a switch in which pollinating bumblebee comes around, or maybe we learn a little bit about how a bee likes to nest. You know, most of the bees that we have are solitary bees. They're not like big honeybee colonies or big bumblebee colonies. They're individual solitary lunar kind of bees uh, that nest in ground or in cavities. And we can learn about those things along the way uh, just by sitting still and watching for a few minutes every day. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds like a great job. I know, right? <laughs> <Luck> <laughs> up. <laughs> Well, in, in one of the spots I stopped by on, you know, most of my stuff I've planted on my parents' property where they've got a, you know, almost an acre to, to kind of just I've slowly been taking over different areas with plants. But I, I did put a mason bee house up in a tree and it's been really cool to stop by there, you know, every once in a while and, you know, see that they've started to, 
you know, take over the, the different holes within this structure. Yeah, um, and that, and that's a, are, are a lot of fun. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, tell us, can you tell us a bit more about Mason bees? You know, they, they seem, and all I've really learned is they've got a really, you know, a pretty big range that they get around to. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they're one of those kind of forgotten pollinators that we, yeah. we don't know much about. Yeah. So they're actually, yeah, yeah, they're actually really, really, uh, ecologically important. I have a colleague at UW Madison, professor Gritton and his lab, uh, who, completed as students in his lab completed a study a few years back looking at the importance of these native bees uh, including mason bees in orchard ecosystems and in the absence of honeybees mason bees can actually play important ecological roles in that pollination ecosystem service as well so even though they're tiny even though they're solitary they're just as effective pollinators can be just as effective pollinators as traditional honeybees and bumblebees. Um, so just because they're little, you shouldn't discount them right off the bat. And what's cool about them too, is that they're, they don't require like all of this maintenance that you have to do with honeybees and all this like, um, you know, extracting honey and maintaining colonies, healthy colonies, you basically just set up a mason bee house. And there's different ways of approaching mason bee houses. You know, sometimes you might see those for sale at your local hardware store. And sometimes they're okay, but sometimes you can do something even simpler. Like I went out to a cattail march uh, a few years ago and just cut a whole bunch of dead cattail stalks and they're kind of hollow in the middle, right? And you can, all you had to do is hollow those things out put a little bit of twine around them and stick that in a tree. And that's a perfect little Mason bee house. So it doesn't take, you know, 20 bucks that you have to spend at your local hardware store to, to build habitat for these little na native bees. And the way you see if these native bees are occupying your mace, your, uh, your, your bee hotel is they'll actually like kind of plaster the walls, uh, which is kind of fun to see. They'll, build basically little mud plasters uh, on the inside of those reeds and also build little walls between the chambers where they've laid their eggs. And they'll stuff those uh, chambers filled with pollen so that the little babies have some food to eat for the next year, which is kind of fun to see. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed yeah, seeing those little mud doors build up. And, um, you know, I've looked at, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I like that you said cattails, and there are several other varieties of plants that you can, you know, as you're kind of cleaning up your, your native wildflower area, just harvest some of that stuff and create a little, exactly. you know, bee yeah. house for it. You know, I think talking a little bit about like, management of your property and that sort of thing, our goal isn't to especially our goal through Nomome isn't to make your yard look trashy <laughs> or make you seem like that lazy neighbor or that crazy neighbor. That's not the goal, but it is our goal to let things take a little bit more of a natural state, you know, and enjoy and find the beauty in that natural state of things. You're going to see things come to bloom that you may have never seen before. There's going to be new flower species in your yard. There's going to be new pollinating visitors. Uh, there's going to be new bugs and new critters walking around that you might not otherwise see. So it's not about making a messy yard, but it's about sort of getting you in touch with that natural ecosystem that would normally be there without our intervention. Yeah, and I think that's a, the, the coolest part is, especially in the springtime, like, you know, just walking around and seeing all that start to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a lot of fun. And, and then you can start to realize, again, our, our part in this and where 
where all this stuff is and you know even just you know that citizen science part um, which i love by the way i mean the fact that we can get people involved in, in the bigger picture science just by going out and taking some notes on your yard and you know finding the right initiative to send that into yeah. um it, it's great to get people involved in that um you know and and yeah and we're all involved in this because we're we're living in it exactly so yeah, and that's that's the other nerdy side of me is like i'm also a big data nerd right and like i can go out and conduct an experiment and get maybe a couple dozen data points and that's all i'm physically able to do as a single researcher doing science on my own but when i have 500 people in a community doing the same thing or a thousand people or 1500 people which is our goal for this year uh, participating in NOMA and contributing data. Now my data set got really big and now I can really say something about what's going on at a, at a regional scale or at a state, uh, at a state scale, which would be really important and informative. Yeah, that's awesome. I would love to see that data laid out. So I'm, I'm hoping this will get out to some people and we can get some more citizen scientists for you. Um, I'll be sure to yeah send along the info that you sent me. Um, we'll, we'll get that in some notes for the, for the podcast. Um, so I know we're kind of getting close on time here, but I did want to, um, you know, kind of look at, at sustainability and, you know, what would you say are kind of the important parts of what you're, you're doing that would really help people, you know, grasp the sustainability idea of this? Yeah, that's a great question. And for me, sustainability starts off with the mentality of being in balance with your native ecosystem in a way that allows those natural processes to occur and sort of minimizes our role and responsibility in maintaining those processes. So how can we get back to that natural state, right, and let ecosystems function as they're supposed to function? Uh, and and in, in a way that's going to preserve that ecosystem function or that ecosystem service for future generations, whether it be future bee generations or future human generations or whatever it might be. Um, so sustainability is definitely a center, central focus of what we're trying to do. We also know that as humans, we're, we like to play an active role in, an, in our ecosystems, right? We want to manage. We want to give maybe biodiversity the best shot at, at succeeding. That's why we might put up our bee houses or why we uh, might plant natives. But there's effective ways of doing that and not effective ways of doing that. And that's what we're trying to reach out to people to do, uh, to, to educate the community on and just say like, look, yes, you can do all of these things, but maybe your money is better spent instead of applying pesticides and herbicides buying some native species or give people alternatives on that are practical and actually have uh, important consequences or beneficial consequences for how they manipulate the ecosystems around them. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to be like a logger in the Amazon forest cutting down a million trees or whatever to manage an ecosystem. You can manage your ecosystem by simply planting a few native flowers in your front porch uh, or you can actively manage an ecosystem by reducing your pesticide and herbicide use or trying alternatives that are more natural, like vinegar water instead of glyphosates. Uh, and and those, those little things, if enough people do them, make a big difference in your community. So sustainability, absolutely a central part of what we're trying to achieve. But I think the big 
I don't know, my personal goal and my personal career objective is to try and educate as many people about what you can do at a very local scale to make real substantial changes that you can actually see and benefit from. Well, yeah, that, um, that kind of summed up like even the main question I like to ask guests too, you know, what, what can we do as individuals to kind of play a part in this? And I think you nailed it there. And, you know, you really reminded me of kind of this, this idea that, you know, nature's this perfect example of sustainability. You know, I mean, it's, it's continued, it's, Yep. been operating for quite some time now without you know human help right. um yet we still try to help nature when really you know we can help it just by being a part of it and not trying to manipulate it as much exactly. and we have to be open to learn from it right like yeah. nature knows how to do things way more effectively than we do as humans and if we can mimic some of those things we can actually learn quite a bit and take you know and, and apply it to our own ecosystems or our own lives and, and go home a winner. Uh, so, you know, I'm hoping that folks reach out. I'm hoping that folks check out our website at byobs.org, and that's bees with a Z, um, byobs.org, to just get access at some of the resources that we have out there available for y'all to, to take advantage of. And if your question isn't answered on our website, you know, our contact information is there. So just reach out. We're only a friendly email or a friendly phone call away. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, just in the, the last couple of minutes here again, um, anything else you'd like to get out there? Anything else that we, we didn't cover? Um, any other, you know, we got your website, anything else that we could, could send people towards? Yep. Um, so we've got some Facebook groups that are really uh, active and have a lot of discussion. So start, some of the Facebook groups that come to mind are obviously the Paul Enablers uh, Facebook group of the Fox Cities. If you're in the Fox Cities and want to get involved with some of our initiatives, please join our group. We have uh, bi-monthly meetings and we chat about what we're going to do next as a big project for, for our communities. Uh, we also have Be More Native uh, as, a, as an interesting uh, Facebook group. There's a lot of really good social media out there groups that are going to allow you to give you those resources to, to do uh, to take a more proactive role in your own backyard and management um, of your biodiversity. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, just be open to learning. Uh, that's my big take home. It's like, I don't know all the answers. I'm sure you don't know all the answers, but we, we, we love to learn. We love to learn from nature. We love to learn from science and we want to get out there and do what's best to protect our natural resources. I couldn't have said it better. That's perfect. Thank you. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I really appreciate your time. This was uh, a great discussion. And I know I could, you know, sit and try to pick your brain for hours here. Um, you know, I love what you're doing, um, you know, checking out your websites and, and the projects you're, you're working on. You know, thank you for all that. That's too cool. You guys are really yeah. doing some, some big things. Always happy to talk bees and, and nature and ecology. So thanks for the invite. Absolutely. And yeah, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, this is another episode of Greencast. And, um, you know, as, as Dr. Israel Del Toro here mentioned, you know, take those little steps each day that we can, you know, enact quickly to, to be a part of this sustainability movement. You know, it, it doesn't take much, you know, trying out some of this new stuff that you're hearing on our podcast. Um, you know, taking a little time to walk around your yard, learn from nature, you know, every little thing we can do on this process of sustainability 
can really help the big picture. So thank you everyone for joining us and join us next time for another episode of Greencast. And be sure to check out our Facebook page. Um, we'd love to get questions. Um, you know, if you'd like to get in touch with uh, Dr. Del Toro here, it'd be great to connect you and, and keep this discussion going. So thank you everyone. We'll see you next time. Make sure to check out Greencast on Facebook, where we post the most up-to-date information, release episodes, provide a lot more resources about things you've heard on the show, and have conversations about episodes and sustainability in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and beyond. Also, if you're interested in the Waukesha County Green Team, please check out our website and Facebook page and come to one of our board meetings. They're always open to the public. Greencast is produced through the Waukesha County Green Team by Alec Lapoitevin and Laura Laux, with help from Stacey Balsley. Our theme music is by Dan Krill and Emma Kopel. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sustainability starts with all of us.